comprehensive, relevant, and insightful conversations about health and medicine happen here on MedStar Health Doc Talk. Now, it is the fifth leading cause of death in America and the leading cause of disabilities, and it can happen in an instant. Stroke. Today, we're talking with Dr. Elliot Dawson, Director of the Vascular Neurology Program and the Stroke Program at MedStar Franklin Square Medical Center. Welcome to Doc Talk, Dr. Dawson. Mike, thanks very much for having me here. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for thank you for coming. You know, I have heard that uh, stroke being referred to as a brain attack, and that seems like an interesting way to put it. But how do you describe it? I think that's a good place to start. Stroke has been known about for generations and centuries. It's been described going back to the BC area, and the way that it presented back then is similar to how I would probably describe it now. All of the sudden, someone has something that's wrong with their body that resembles loss of function of the brain. So part of their one side of their body, an arm or a leg, may not be able to move anymore. They may not be able to talk anymore. The face may be drooping. And what patients will often describe to me is it happened out of the blue. So in neurology, the onset, the timing of symptoms is really critical to how we diagnose disease. You can think of dementias like dementia with Lewy bodies. That's something that occurs over months to years. But with stroke, it's really immediate out of the blue. So that timing is how I would describe it. Um, And for most people, it's very noticeable. Now, there are silent strokes that occur, but for most people, when they see that something is suddenly wrong and one side of the body isn't working anymore, that should be a key warning sign that you may be having a stroke. They may not necessarily have splitting headache or any other sign perhaps than the they've lost some functionality either with their you know with their face or th- th- their limbs aren't working that's right so right we have this there are different ways of trying to educate and communicate to people the common stroke signs that they should be aware of uh, this term b fast is something that we support here at medstar b fast b e f a s t stands for problems with balance immediately, loss of vision in one or both eyes, drooping of the face, loss of control of an arm or a leg, all of a sudden having difficulty with speech. If you yourself notice that you're getting frustrated by not understanding what someone is saying, or you yourself are being frustrated by not being able to communicate, that should be a warning sign. And then the T stands for this concept of thunderclap headache. It's really the worst headache of your life that happens almost immediately or within a minute. And those are the common stroke symptoms that people will be aware of. But, you know, we also know that there are silent strokes where injury to the brain, loss and death of brain tissue can occur and people don't know it. So it's, it's frankly common where I will see scans of the brain where I can see chronic long-standing injury to the brain that people have not been aware of. So it's, it's important to mention that. There are really two different types of strokes if we want to think big picture. Uh, the stroke is not just one type of thing. The more common type of stroke is when there's lack of blood flow to an area of the brain and that brain tissue is starting to die or is dying. The other type is the bleeding type where an artery bursts or breaks and then there's blood in the brain where there shouldn't be. So with that element of thunderclap headache, that implies a certain type of bleeding in the brain. And those are very serious. Uh, We think that up to one third of those patients, people don't actually make it to the hospital alive. So it's so severe. It's, it's, it's devastating. Right. So there's no question that as soon as you or someone else thinks there's need to be concerned, really, if it enters your mind, that's enough where you should be thinking about calling 911. Follow your instinct. Yeah. 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 Um, 
You know, I, I think there are there's a, a case where sometimes people feel that stroke is something where it happens and the damage is done and there's sort of no way around it. Um, with stroke, is there something similar to an emergency medicine where they have the golden hour? Uh, what what are what's the time frame that you look at in terms of from the time the stroke hits to the to the time where medically you can intervene? Yeah, no, great question. So one thing I should mention is that the question on who act Right, so we want to see as many people as soon as possible so we can help most amount of people possible. There's been good evidence that shows that people in underserved communities and rural communities, uh, minorities as well, are less likely to activate EMS. So it's definitely an imperative for us as a community, serving the community to make sure that we recognize people who are at risk, that we have those services available to them. And that's why this program is growing here because everyone should have the right to have access to that type of emergent medical care. Now, to your question, um, time is essential, right? Uh, folks may have heard of this concept of time of brain. When we you know, look at how many neurons we think are in the brain and, on average, how much of brain tissue dies, we think that every minute about 2 million brain cells are dying. Uh, we think that on the order of maybe 14 billion synapses, those are the connections between neurons are dying within a minute, that almost seven miles long of brain tissue is dying at that time. And we can offer treatments. There is no question, um, or I should say the strongest evidence available in medicine has shown that a medication called Alteplase can help folks who are having that blockage type of stroke, uh, an ischemic stroke, we can only give it, though, if someone has had those symptoms within four and a half hours or the last time they were well was within four and a half hours in general. There, there are rare exceptions to that, but in general, it's a four and a half hour uh, limit there. Since 2015, there was really a breakthrough in medicine uh, where procedures called thrombectomy, someone can actually go inside the arteries of the body, access that clot in the brain, and they can pull it out. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing stuff, and uh, we're doing that here. And that window is larger. It's about 24 hours. But like I mentioned to you before, even if someone comes in here at the 23-hour mark, a lot of injury has occurred. And so that, you know, patients are more likely to do worse off the longer it takes for them to get here than to receive that care. So is the damage then, uh, is that damage permanent, or some of that uh, is it able to reverse when you reestablish the blood flow or take care of the blockage? Or Yeah, An another great question. So, so frankly, I think uh, the perfect answer to that probably would get you a Nobel. We don't know exactly <laughs> how the brain heals itself, but certainly we know that people can recover. And we, we know that the recovery can take time. You know, sometimes that can be on the orders of weeks to months. And typically we measure how effective our treatments are by how people are three months after the stroke has occurred. People can start to get better immediately. We recently treated a patient here who had a complete blockage in the neck. And what that means is the entire half of that part of the brain was going to die. And we were able to remove that clot and that patient was able to walk out of the hospital days later. Um, she was actually probably back to normal essentially the next day. Right, that's an excellent outcome as opposed yeah. to something that's devastating where a patient has permanent deficits. So, you know, it, it varies. It's a conversation that we as specialists have all the time. How do we identify people who may be at more risk of having permanent deficits or not? The best thing we know is to give prompt emergent treatment for them and to start offering them therapies and to make sure that all the other organ systems are healthy so that they can start to recover. That has to be fairly rewarding for you when you do see a patient like that where things, you know, everything goes right. 
There's no question about it. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it. I'll be honest, it feels great. Um, to see someone come in and they can't talk, they can't move half their body, and to know what that means for someone, and then to have them leave walking is it, it's entirely satisfying for me personally. Yeah, I, mean, I know medicine is an art, and you can't. Uh, you have to be very cautious about what you can say you can do, but yeah. that, that is, it is amazing that, that you do see things like that. that well, happens. right, so in the beginning, you mentioned that stroke was the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. and certainly amongst Americans, and you know, back in 1980 was the number three cause, and I strongly believe that the reason why that number has gone down is because of the advances in medicine and technology and improving our systems of care to deliver to people. So, you know, this, uh, there was a time when there wasn't very much we could do for people who were having strokes. They came in, that's how they were going to be, and we would offer them you know, rehabilitation therapy, and there wasn't much more. But with the advent of these medications in the ER, these procedures to pull out clots, it's a game changer. And then you were saying that uh, MedStar has some things that they're working on and uh, different avenues to be able to help stroke patients. Can you talk about that, for instance, with the, the, the comprehensive stroke center? Yeah. So you know, in general, uh, we have different types of tiers of service. Um, to have a comprehensive stroke service requires a lot more investment and resources to that facility as opposed to what we call a primary stroke service. There are primary stroke services. There's what we call thrombectomy-capable services or centers and then comprehensive services. And at all of those, the hospital is able to safely give that blood thinning medicine, Alteplacer or TPA. At the thrombectomy, capable or comprehensive centers, they do those procedures where they pull out those clots. And at the comprehensive stroke center, it's really kind of the be-all for that area. Uh, they, that type of facility has expertise in managing all levels of complex neurologic disease, both the bleeding types and the blood clot types where there's been blockage of an artery. And those can be quite complicated to treat uh, the thrombectomy-capable don't see as many of those bleeding types. And then, again, the primaries don't have those procedures where they pull out clots, so to speak. And MedStar has identified that there's really a need in this area. Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Hartford County, Carroll County, all the surrounding areas around here, um, really there's still unmet need for our patients. And I think a decision was made, wisely so, uh, to invest in Franklin Square kind of as a hub to ultimately become a comprehensive stroke center. So we are, in, we are deep in that process now to build up our resources and processes to become a thrombectomy and then a comprehensive stroke center. We want to be a place that can treat all types of complex disease for our community. That's great. And then how far away are you from getting that? So we've already made great strides. Um, one major element was you know, building that angiography suite where uh, the procedures are done to remove clots and treat aneurysms. Those are kind of ballooning's of the artery that can bleed. Uh, we've hired a fantastic neurointerventionalist. That's the type of doctor who does those procedures where they pull out clots. His name is Paul Singh. And uh, we are it, – it's a, it's a, it's a big – big uh, order to come to the comprehensive letter, uh, level. So, right, that means engaging with our community, providing education, building up the neuro ICU. We've built a helipad. So what that allows is for people to get here as quickly as possible so no one's stuck in traffic. So all those investments have been made by MedStar Health. And now that we kind of have the principles on the ground, it's about building up our resources for what works best for Franklin Square and our community, again, uh, to be able to treat 
our patients. Now, we are fortunate that you know, the MedStar Health System has partnerships with places that are already established as comprehensive stroke centers. So Washington Hospital Center and Georgetown University are mm-hmm. those leaders that we have within the MedStar system. And there's, it, it, it makes no good sense really to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So we are fortunate enough to have that expertise available for what works well for them. And we use that here for what works well for us. But again, obviously, uh, Franklin Square is a hospital that has its own unique needs to the Baltimore area. So we really make it work. Uh, what has worked well for Washington Hospital Center in Georgetown as known leaders and experts, and how do we make that work for us here? So then, I mean, you, since stroke just comes on without any warning, you can't plan your stroke. Um, how does that work then? Are they stabilized and treated then at the primary? And then that gets them to the point where they could... Uh, move to one of the other facilities? You're asking great questions. So that's actually, that's a national question that regions have to decide. So like I was saying, the difference between primary and comprehensive centers, if you imagine maybe a number line, zero, one, two, three, going to the right, uh, if the zero point is where the patient is having the stroke, it's an active question. So if the next place closest is the primary and then the next farthest place is a comprehensive, is it worth going directly to that primary center when they have a large vessel occlusion or should they bypass that knowing that it's going to take longer to go, get to the comprehensive stroke center? And what has been decided that works well for Maryland is that it is really kind of a 30-minute radius. So if someone is within 30 minutes of a comprehensive stroke center, they should just go there first. We know that there's right delays or it takes more time if someone goes to a primary center than they have to be transferred to another hospital. Instead of losing that time, it's really best for patients just to go to a comprehensive or a thrombectomy-capable center where they can get both of those treatments at the same time. But right there is, it's, it, there's a bit of a zero-sum dynamic there where if it takes longer to get to that comprehensive stroke center, then they may not be getting TPA as fast. So that that's a question that everyone in the country has to figure out what works best for them. Right. And then if in, in 911 just takes you to the first, the closest one available usually. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, but, but if, so like I was saying in that example, if the closest one is a primary stroke center, but there's also a comprehensive stroke center within 30 minutes, our EMS system here is going to take them to that comprehensive stroke center, even though the primary is closer. That's and the, great. Yeah. yeah. And the, the idea really is, and this is, this is all borne out by data and evidence is that it's just as safe to bypass when it's within 30 minutes, and people do better when they are able to go directly to that comprehensive stroke center. So who gets a stroke? And I mean, we, I think we, we close our eyes and we, we think of people, body types, and you know, the athlete versus the someone who may be uh, carrying extra weight or maybe not have the best uh, uh, health or diet or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. Is the, do those correlate at all, or is this, does this happen to anyone? Well, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Um, Unfortunately, you know, you can be a marathon runner and do everything that you can to be in great health and have a stroke. But there's no question that there are certain things that we do that increases the risk of having stroke. So, and, you know, I think it's probably common sense for most people or, or things you already know. So smoking cigarettes, tobacco use, there's no question that that increases your risk of stroke. We know that, uh, when people are young, um, that's when they typically start to smoke. And 
the things that are important to young folks are probably different to folks who are older in life. And you know, I, I even know from my own personal conversations, and you may have heard this yourself, uh, we talk about why people smoke, and people, at least in my experience, have said, well, I'm going to die anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, what does it matter? Um, or I don't want to live to be X amount of years old. So, you know, what does it matter? And boy, I try to think to myself, what could I do to help show people or let them see what I see? So when I see someone in a hospital, and unfortunately, we're discovering a tumor that the patient didn't know about that. When I tell someone you may have cancer, their response isn't, okay, I'll see you in a year. Thanks a lot. Uh, you know, what happens to them is a flood of fear, anxiety, um, the fact that they may no longer be able to be with their grandchildren, that they may miss out on the wedding of their daughter. Those are the things that really terrify people. And I don't think that really occurs to people when they're in that murky age in their teens or 20s and start smoking cigarettes. They'll live forever years. Yeah, exactly. So... Oh, I, I, on the topic of cigarettes, I, you know, I think everyone knows that they're quote-unquote bad for you, but I don't think people really appreciate the amount of suffering that happens as a result of having disease that could have been prevented likely from smoking cigarettes. You know, when you're diagnosed with a tumor, um, it can be very painful. And like I said, it's a source of anxiety and suffering for that person and their family, and it, it, it's just so sad when you see it. Um, but so smoking cigarettes, to get back to your question, is one way that we can prevent uh, strokes. Uh, obesity, certainly. You know, I, I think that diet and exercise are probably the most effective ways to keep yourself out of the hospital. Uh, but they're also the hardest. And I get that <laughs> myself. You know, there are times when I notice my belt is shrinking. and you know, <laughs> How does that happen? I, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. And I struggle myself, you know, uh, with, with uh, trying to get in those behaviors. You know, my wife and I, we have two young kids and sleep is not abundant in our household. And I understand, or, you know, people may have multiple jobs. The economy's been hurting. It's hard to exercise on a regular basis. And sometimes when you want to come home, you just want to have that delicious treat <laughs> because it's been a long day. But I really want to emphasize that healthy diet and exercise are essential to preventing stroke. There's, you know, it's an active question on what type of diet to. Um, and that's really hard for, I think, the medical community to get real certainty about. But, you know, the Mediterranean diet and the low-carb diet are ones that we often recommend as starting points for people. I, I often tell patients that when you go grocery shopping, the most of your cart should be full of stuff in the produce aisle, you know, yeah. all those fresh foods. And I think drinking water as opposed to other type of sweet or carbonated beverages is, is a good place to start. Outside of diet and exercise, um, then we start talking about other medical diseases. So with obesity, then people are at high risk for high blood pressure, problems with cholesterol, uh, high blood sugars and diabetes, and all of those different diet, disease processes will increase your risk for stroke as well. So uh, they all work together. I, I think the starting point is really diet and exercise. And sometimes with age, things just happen too. Yep. And, that, and that's where medications come into play. Um, the medicines that are often uh, prescribed to people are important. We, you know, physicians don't just give these out because we think uh, it's fun to give out medicines, right? There, there's an abundance of data that many of the common medicines for blood pressure, cholesterol, sugar, etc., um, help prevent disease of the heart, which is the, mo the leading cause of death in the country, and also disease of the brain, too. I, I, I want to add that I, I often see people in the hospital who probably have sleep apnea, or they do have sleep apnea, they're not being treated for it. 
I think that's probably an under-recognized disease process. I, I can look at an MRI scan of the person's brain, and I can pretty decently predict if they have sleep apnea just looking at the pictures. And I, it, it'll happen frequently where I come in and I ask the patient, do you snore when you sleep? Or does your bed partner ever elbow you and say, hey, hey, cut it out? <laughs> or do you even wake up out of breath? And they'll say, yeah. And, you know, I can, I can predict that just based on looking at what's happening in the brain, going back to this idea of, of silent injury to the brain. Well, it's funny you say that because for years my wife insisted that I snored and I, <laughs> I, I would not believe her because uh-huh. I've never heard it. But finally I was convinced to get a CPAP, you know, to do all the stuff. Yeah. And then it, it yeah. ended up in CPAP. And it's been life-changing. It's been yeah. life-changing. I feel better. Yeah. My coloring's better. Yeah. Lost weight. Exercise is more fun. Work is more fun. And I, I almost said to her, well, why didn't anybody tell me before <laughs> now? And yeah. of course she was. Yeah. I just wasn't ready to listen. Yeah. You know, it's also like you said about how being, you know, busy and tired when, with kids and, and such that, you know, when you want to come home and have a treat, I think as far as diet and exercise, when treats are no longer treats, when they become normal, yeah. part of your diet, perhaps you need to realize your diet needs to change. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, you know, different diets, I think, work well for different people. That's really an individualized decision that people have to come to and recognize. And sometimes it takes trial and error. You know, you mentioned sleep apnea. You know, that's an interruption in the quality of sleep. Your oxygen levels are dipping down when you're sleeping, and that, that injures the brain. It makes you at high risk for having problems with high blood pressure and headaches during the day, and you're tired, it, right? It's interrupting with your sleep. And I think it's really under-recognized the value of a good quality sleep has for our quality of life when we're awake. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's, it's funny. We, t- we started out talking about stroke, and then we end up talking just about sort of general health. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you know I, I would imagine that sometimes the – I don't know what the percentage is, but probably some – I would imagine in the stroke patients, they probably have other things that are – compounding their lack of overall health? Well, I'll I'll tell you, I'm a neurologist and I'm biased. Uh, You know, I think the lungs and the heart are there to serve the brain, right? (laughs) Um, The brain tissue dies uh, when there's been three to five minutes without oxygen. So we can't do neurology well if we don't have a good sense of what's happening with the rest of the body, right? They interact with each other all the time. And so good heart health, good lung health, good wellness and health overall impacts neurologic health and vice versa. Anything coming up on the horizon that you, that you know about that would either prevent or help in the treatment of, of strokes? Well, I, I would say I know within the medical community, there's a new type of blood clot. Well, I don't want to use this term fibrinolytic, but a different version of alteplase called tenecteplase that's being actively studied. And I think our colleagues down at Georgetown University are actually undergoing trials as well. This medicine doesn't require as much work in the ER. It's easy to deliver, and so that makes it easier for us to deliver fair cap. Uh, to deliver care faster. It's called Tenecteplase. There continues to be advances in technology and ways that we approach taking out those clots in the brain. And, there, you know, we, we didn't spend so much time on the different type of bleeding types of brain, but there are still active questions on how we prevent injury. So there is injury initially when there's bleeding in the brain, but with certain types of bleeds, there continues to be injury the next couple of weeks after that happens as well. So there is certainly ongoing research to how we can prevent that secondary injury after a bleed too. So the takeaway here as we wrap this up is that best thing to prevent possibility of having a stroke is to your general overall health? Absolutely. And, and I would add, uh, be aware of those signs of stroke. Be fast, balance, difficulty with vision with your eyes, uh, drooping of the face, loss of movement in the arm, difficulty with speech, very bad headache, the worst that's 
headache that you may be having in your life. Calling 911 or EMS as quickly as possible. MedStar is here for our community, and we are going to be available for all types of complex neurologic disease. I also want to add, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Like I said, I'm biased, uh, but, you know, when I I hear stories like in India recently, um, families watching their loved ones, frankly, dying in a taxi cab as they're driving around trying to get access to health care. Um, it, it, right. It, it's it's tragic. And, and unfortunately, there have been similar experiences like that here in the U.S., and, and we obviously don't want that to happen. I, I ask folks who haven't been vaccinated, please, 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 please go get vaccinated. If you don't want to do it for yourself, then think of your family members or your friends. I have an infant who was born in December, and I had to make the very difficult decision to tell my mom that she probably shouldn't fly over here to see him born. That still hurts me today, but I think that was the safe thing to do for her. And the fact that we can get vaccinated for ourselves and our family members is is a gift that we can give to other people. Uh, You know, it's really a surreal experience to walk into someone's room when you know they have COVID, they're struggling to breathe, they're having difficulty. Again, I, I think of ways that how I how can I communicate that to other people and you know that that scene in ET kind of at the end when they when they found ET and they have all those masks on you can hear that breathing right we can hear ourselves breathing as docs when we're going in it's it's really a, a surreal experience and I, it's uh, it's really taken a toll on us as physicians and healthcare workers as well so if not for me do it for my colleagues who are the nurses and doctors and other healthcare providers, you know, we are on the front of the line. And, you know, when we come to work, we're putting ourselves in danger and our family members too. You know, that's what we signed up for. We know that and we're proud to do it, but it takes a toll on us too. And if not for them, then do it for your community. You know, businesses have been suffering. Uh, people have been out of work. I know that everyone wants to get out. I do too. But, you know, local businesses are suffering and and, and people are out of jobs because of the effect of this pandemic. So, Again, I want to implore folks to please get vaccinated if they can. Good words. COVID is something that happens to people and they go away. So people aren't seeing the suffering that you see every day. And I think that may be one of the reasons why people aren't going and getting vaccinated because they're not seeing the suffering that happens. And I appreciate you sharing those thoughts on that. And of course, on your work um, in neurology and strokes, because uh, uh, it's uh, it's an honor to talk to someone who is saving lives. Thanks for saying that. Again, you know, when I went into med school, I, I told myself, you know, what, what, how do I define a good day? And uh, t- to me, it, it's really making one act that helps someone else or that was I a helpful member for society. And this is a unique opportunity to be able to share with you uh, kind of my experience and what I know. So I want to thank you for helping me kind of share what I know with folks. Well, I'm, there's a, a somewhat of a side topic uh, in just talking to my daughter when she was little about how to be as a person. I said, well, you can mm-hmm. sum up you two words: be kind. And yeah. taking the the vaccine is 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 an act of kindness, yeah, uh, both for yourself and for everyone else. Absolutely, so I Absolutely. appreciate you describing it in the way that you did. Uh, we've been talking with MedStar Health, Dr. Elliot Dawson. Dr. Dawson, thank you for sharing your expertise here on MedStarHealth.talk. To learn more about Dr. Dawson, visit MedStarHealth.org slash Dawson or request a neurology appointment by calling 443-777-7320. That's 443-777-7320. 